Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington president at Jazz Education Network and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. Yeah, we're live. And I think this is episode 13. Is it? Episode Lucky 13. Lucky 13. Lucky We're making 13. our own Friday the 13th here, folks. Oh, it's fabulous. <laughs> and I am very happy to report that it is raining in Seattle, finally. So the air quality, uh, maybe it's not improving, but it kind of feels like it's improving. Right. So uh, for those of you who are coming in from all other parts of the nation, the Pacific Northwest has been soaking in a smoke marinade for the last, <laughs> for the last oh, week or so, um, just sitting in it. So um, we needed that rain. It's been it, pretty gnarly. The rain yeah. is so welcome, as is the breeze that it brings with, because I can wear my brand new Jazz Girl sweatshirt, finally. And I'm stoked. Fantastic. And I am also stoked. And actually, my dog Chachi here is extremely stoked as well. He's joining us because <laughs> he really loves him some uh, alt strings music. <laughs> yes. Which, yeah, which is a term that I cannot stand. Maybe people here want to talk about that. Yes. Um, we're just gonna i'm gonna turn it over to my like string specialist people and um let's talk shop y'alls let's talk shop um so i'm gonna introduce our guests and the cool part about our guests is that they uh they work in both worlds both right. of these individuals are brass musicians originally so, yes but also both of these individuals are, um, are experts in folk music and um, are, are placing kind of an emphasis on the music of Appalachia, um, old time bluegrass and um, looking at that as it intersects with various things. So let me introduce them one by one. We'll start with Sofia Enriquez. Sophia is a doctoral student at Ohio State University in Ethno Ohio State. Ohio State University. Yes, let's not forget the, the yeah. Sorry, I'm such a Northwesterner. Oh my goodness. Um, but she is studying a, for a doctoral degree in ethnomusicology. The focus of her work is that she is looking at Latinx musicians and music making in Appalachia um, and also studying the intersection of Latinx music with bluegrass, 
and old time, the music of Appalachia, that which is, so is cool. extremely, extremely fascinating. And, and I know nothing about it. I yeah. can't wait to learn. It's so cool. And, um, and there's such cool things happening. And we are also joined by um, the esteemed um, associate professor of musicology at West Virginia University. That's a West Virginia University. Yeah. <laughs> One of them. One of them. And um, this is Professor Travis Steimling. Um, and Travis um, is the director of the WVU uh, Bluegrass and Old Time Ensembles and also runs the university's Appalachian music program and um, Appalachian Studies minor. That is so, so cool. I want that minor. Yes. <laughs> I, I know. How cool is that? So um, we are really excited to have you here because Kelly and I um, used to run a music program in a very urban part of Seattle. Um, neither of us work there still, but um, it remains like a major part of our identity. The glory years. The glory years, if you will. Um, but um, one of um, the things that we started um, at the school was, um, a, I guess, a, it was kind of, at least at first, based in Appalachian music, um, a, a group that we called the Fiddlers at Washington Middle School. And that group um, was really involved in um, fiddle music, bluegrass music, um, and other styles. So we definitely also moved toward jazz. Um, the school itself was a very jazz-focused school. Kelly is a jazz specialist. Um, and um, so the group really you know, took on styles that were not related at all to um, Eurocentric art music. And it really kind of transformed those kids. And um, I mean, even to this day. Um, also, I am very involved in the greater bluegrass community as the director of education for Wintergrass, which is a large scale festival up here in the Pacific Northwest. And we have a very large education component. Um, and one of the things that we're very interested in at Wintergrass is how do we make our music more culturally responsive? So we, um, Kelly and I have been doing some research and um, you two came up as people that we need to be talking to about this. So welcome to our show. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah. What do y'all want to talk about? What's yeah. your agenda? Talk to me. <laughs> why are, why well, should we be teaching Appalachian music, folk music, American roots music? How, how, why, who, when? Jump on in. Sophia, you want to start or should I? <laughs> I will start with a preface to um, mine and Travis's relationship. So we're, you know, good colleagues and also friends, and he has... Um, turned out to be one of the the best mentors I never really asked for. Um, <laughs> Those are the best and, ones, I think. Yeah, and so so we. Um, I was 
was in his music history class as a undergraduate music major at West Virginia University and also saw the birth of the Bluegrass and Old Time program at WVU, which I participated in for two years. Um, And this involved me walking into his office one day and saying, I think I want to sing bluegrass. And he said, okay, well, sing me something. And I did. And then the rest is history. And I think that- that how you got involved is that you wanted a place to sing and that felt like the natural spot? I wanted something different. I wanted a break from the the sort of, well, the the Western classical, very strict model. of learning and I had just ex- been exposed to bluegrass just by nature of being in West Virginia and being around a lot of West Virginians who were active in that community. And I just I just wanted to try. Um, and I didn't really realize until after the fact that actually where I'm from in Southwestern Ohio is like bluegrass, like super, super important in the history of bluegrass and lots of bluegrass action happening. Yeah. Um, close to my hometown. So just, I wanted just to say that um, Travis and I have really built a relationship based on um, vulnerability and open conversations like this one that we're about to have. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to put that out there because for me, that's sort of at the core of, of how I approach my work as a teacher, but also as a scholar, as a musician is around this theme of, of vulnerability and and learning and and these are things that we need right now more than ever um i really love hearing you say that we've um we've been talking a lot beth and i with our guests over the last few weeks about you know why people are maybe avoiding changing their practice at this time that is the golden moment to make those changes and that it's probably um fear-based and and also, I think an unwillingness to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. to, to not be willing to do that. And I appreciate your pointing out, like, what a critical component to growth that is. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we talk about vulnerability a lot. We also talk about grace. Mm. Uh, those, are, those are two themes that come up and in, in, I think probably started somewhere in a hallway at WVU and now have kind of become pervading themes in our regular text messages. But I think that's at the core of learning any form of music, right? You're putting yourself out there, you're taking creative risks, and you're going to make mistakes. And I feel like, uh, go ahead and bring bell hooks into the conversation already. I think that the music associated with, the do- with, with dominator culture Mm-hmm. is so much about mastery and and pointing out your failures to master. Uh, and one of the things that we really drive through the Bluegrass program here, the Appalachian Music program here, is that we expect you to take creative risks and make lots of mistakes and keep growing, right? And, and the core of my teaching philosophy is students need to feel three things. They need to feel safe, they need to feel loved, and they need to feel seen. And so that includes in my music history classroom, that goes right into the, into the ensembles that I lead as well. So we've done everything from kind of traditional old time fiddle tunes from, from Pocahontas County, West Virginia, the Hammonds family tunes and things. Um, we've also done Taylor Swift covers. Why? Because students bring the music that they are interested in and we work to, in, to find ways to use bluegrass and old time idioms to rearrange those songs. Right. 
because we start, I, I like to start with where the students are comfortable and then get them to start pushing out a little bit more. And so if that's a pop country song, well, we can work with a pop country song, right? Um, actually, when, when Sophia first started, we had a killer Black Sabbath cover uh, in, in her band. Uh, Warp Pigs. Yeah. You've not heard Warp Pigs until you've heard it in bluegrass style. And we tore down a place with that one night. That was I great. love uh, um, the bluegrassification of anything. I'm always, like, super inspired by that. And... Um, I just think it's a beautiful part of that community, this willingness to um, avoid snobbery, maybe. Yeah. yeah. It's refreshing. Or, or at least to, to take some of the snobbery that's associated with Western art music and, yeah. and, and call it for what it is and recognize that there's also snobbery in vernacular musical traditions. Mm -hmm. There is definitely bluegrass snobbery. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Uh, and it's often very, very heavily rooted in white masculinity. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, it's not all flowers and, and, and butterflies. Um, but I think couched in the right way, and, and, and our program is really couched in the context of a jam session. So everybody brings what they can. Uh, we learn from each other by watching fingers by trying out harmonies face to face and we see what works and what doesn't work. Um, and that's really important. Students drive the program. Uh, what they want to work on is what we work on. Uh, and and uh, that also gives students buy-in, right? Uh, and then the last, the last kind of core component of what we do is we work really hard to uh, connect to the people of West Virginia. I teach at a land-grant school, which means that we, uh, we actually exist uh, in part to serve the people of the state of West Virginia. Uh, we don't have a budget, but we, we still see that it, when we have WVU on our, on our name, we owe that to the taxpayers, uh, the residents of the state. So that means that we do free public school concerts, not to teach people about how great bluegrass music is, but to highlight the fact it's already in their communities. So when we go to a rural school, uh, I do the research to find out who the leading musicians are in that community and make sure to at least name check them during our concerts uh, and tell them where they can go to hear this music. Um, that's kind of you know, for the sake of, of cultural sustainability as much as anything. Um, and then the other thing we do is we bring in practitioners from our community to, community to help teach us. Uh, and actually, if you look over my shoulder, there's a great photograph here of Kathy Matea, the Grammy Award winning artist who dropped out of WVU to pursue a career in, Nash in Nashville. And uh, one of our great traditional singers, Jenny Hawker, both of them have come back to teach for us uh, on a regular basis. And, uh, and you know, we're really lucky to have that sort of not only the support but also the accountability to the to the people who have been upholding these traditions uh when we're doing this work so um so yeah I'd be curious i don't want to um uh nav like steer the conversation too much um as the non-string person here especially but <laughs> i um wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you run jam sessions because um, I notice in the jazz community that uh, jam sessions do not feel um, inclusive or um, like a safe learning environment. They feel like a place where if you don't know certain things, uh, you will be um, 
told that you need to go do some more work and in a not so nice way and or um that you just flat out will be ignored like vibed or um you know it doesn't feel like the right spot and what you've just described and i assume um that sophia has been to them as well is um a jam session that sounds like what I want to be able to create for jazz students, but I've never really seen one. But I have seen them at Wintergrass. I have seen jam sessions at Wintergrass with students all the way up to, um, you know, like elders in the community jamming together. And it felt like what I want to see. How do you all create that? What, how does that work? Because I think our band directors could really learn a lot from that, myself included. Well, a lot of it starts with pattern recognition, right? On a very like purely music pedagogy kind of way. Um, if you know how to play one, four, and five, in G major on a guitar, you've opened up about 50% of the repertoire. Yeah, three chords in the truth. Three chords right? in the truth and, all the and way. And if, if you can throw a D shape in there, then you've opened up another 10%. Um, so there is a kind of common vocabulary there, musically speaking. Right. Uh, I also teach students to use the Nashville number system, which is a form of notation developed uh, in the Nashville studio system back in the 1950s to offer shorthand for how the harmonies work in a tune. And so we'll shout out, you know, this is an 11, this one has, it goes 1141, 1151, 1141, 1151. And watch me for the changes. Because if, if it's got a squirrely, you know, half bar or something in there, watch me for the changes, catch it on the second verse, right? right. And, okay. so, and so it's just about like connecting eyes to fingers and ears. It's all just kind of learning while you're doing right. that. I wonder if, if um, one of the reasons that doesn't work so well in band circles is because your mouth is busy while you're playing. Mm. You know, like rhythm section players can operate in that manner, but it would be very hard for me to play trombone and also be yelling out information. Um, but it seems like that could be very easily avoided by just a little short pre-teach or um, putting something on the board or something like that. Yeah, and and honestly, if you're using like a you know blues progression or something like that, fingers. Sure. I do that. You know, I I flash fingers during rehearsal to get people. If I notice that there are a couple of people who aren't catching, but I don't want to stop the band, I'll just throw fingers up, and they'll they'll get back on. Yeah. Right. There's something more though. It's not. It feels like a cultural value system that's different, and I, I'd like to understand more about it so I can try and advocate for those things in the jazz world. Well, one thing I'd like to know, maybe from Sophia, um, I'd love to hear your story of um, like entering into say a bluegrass jam for the first time. Cause I have a story that I want to tell, but I want to hear yours first um, because um, Kelly, there are rules that you can break. I know because I've done it. Right. Sophia, I'd love to hear your story. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess a, a distinction that that is relevant in some ways, um, especially for folks who who are coming at this from like or already have exposure experience in bluegrass and all time spaces. Those are two very different things when it comes to the jam. Mm -hmm. 
in the Appalachian music community more broadly, the old time jam has a reputation of being much more welcoming and much more inviting and accepting. Um, I, that's not just my own experience, but that's something that I often hear from folks, um, specifically women. There's also, there is a musical component in that a lot of the old time repertoire is not, is, is follow is predictable, right? Not that bluegrass is not also predictable, but there is sort of a, there's, um, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like there's the a simple format, the formulas. Yeah, there's the question of complexity and it's, you are more likely to encounter a song um, that maybe requires a different skill level, like in a, a bluegrass jam, that's been my experience. So um, there are, and there's also the question of singing, right? A lot of old time jams, they may or may not have singing. Um, so I would say that um, I, given that, I do have more experience in bluegrass communities. So I've done a lot of just like what we call in ethnographic research, participant observation, mm -hmm. showing up to a festival, uh, starting up a conversation, making some sort of in to then sort of work my way into the periphery of the jam and eventually like in the actual jam. And that's usually me playing guitar. And I like, I don't play big fancy solos. I can play a really steady, strong rhythm guitar. And that's all I need to do. And, um, and I will sing if it's, it's appropriate or there's an opportunity. Um, but my experience, um, especially as a young woman, um, entering into mostly like white, older male dominant spaces has been a lot. Like <laughs> it's been- um, Talk about it, talk about it. Yeah, so it's been a lot in that there is, um, there's, of course, there's the power dynamic, mm -hmm. right? There's the genderedness. There's the um, there's the uh, oftentimes there's a, a sexual tension. Um, there's a and that and that comes also with the repertoire, which we can talk about too, right? And the way that women are often sexualized or objectified in different ways in through the lyrics. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I think it's just the I've been told we cannot possibly play that song in that key um you're gonna have to sing it somewhere else um that's too sissy like all oh, i've heard it all um in terms of uh just like genderness um uh assumptions about women not being competent musicians or um yeah so there is the whole, I would say that my experience has very much been characterized by those, those gender problems that we have um, in these spaces. Um, but I also have, I've kind of reached a point where I don't care, but I do sort of, for me, there's sort of a, there's a politics about my decision about which spaces I, I choose mm -hmm. to enter into or not to. Um, and that comes from just this idea of like, well, how does one like get started at a jam? For me, it's like, I need to, I need to be in a position to observe first to know, is this a space where I'm going to be welcomed? And if not, what's that going to look like for me? Um, is it worth it? Um, so these are all sort of things that I have to think through that I think, you know, the, like a, 
I guess a straight like white dude would not need to think about um Mm -hmm. or you know there might be social anxiety but it's not anxiety because they don't look the same or or they don't identify the same right um so yeah I would say that um and that that has definitely had a hand in the sort of critical frameworks and lenses that I I use in my research and my own pedagogy because I, I, I am coming at it from that experience. And I suppose that this is also backing up to that idea of um, vulnerability. And um, I think, Kelly, you were talking about like what or what, what your students bring into uh, when they're, you're talking about learning a new music or whatever. And I think like, okay, what do I bring to this music? How do I identify it? Where do I see myself or not see myself in it? Right. Um, so I think that being the like broad other in, in a bluegrass song or in bluegrass music in general, those questions are always sort of turning about where not you do or don't see yourself represented. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that's, I guess, been my experience vaguely. Um, and I would be interested for sure to hear more about like I don't have experience in jazz circles. I was never like big into jazz trumpet. Um, you no, know, um, jazz jam sessions have a real formula. You know, there's a, a rhythm section. Uh, sometimes it's a house band where, you know, people might cycle in and out, but a set group, um, but not always. Um, and then there's often someone who is calling charts or and or inviting people up. But, um, you know, there's usually like two to four horn players. You play the melody a couple of times and then you, you know, people improvise solos. Sometimes uh, uh, you're improvising backgrounds. Um, There might be trading fours or trading twos, you know, this type of thing. But it's pretty formulaic. Um, But I feel like, but it's uh it's always very um it feels very um like it's still a performance yeah that's what i was gonna say i was gonna say it's performative like most of the jazz jams i see are they take place on a stage as opposed to like a bluegrass jam or an old-time jam where if there are elements of being performative of course but Mostly it's set up in a circle. Circle. I think that's a huge part of what might make it feel more like a community. Right. If you're facing each other, not an audience. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder about, and I also think there's something about the all play format that's much more welcoming because you can um, barely be, be, be hanging on to the basic chord changes and still participate. Whereas at a jazz jam session, I have never seen a time where there would be four guitarists or maybe 10 horn players. Um, And so then you feel isolated and kind of called out. And now you're on stage and it's in front of people. And so even the most um, like chill, loosey-goosey jams, they still feel uptight. And I've tried to speak to folks about how I think that that is really keeping out a huge number of folks 
because not only do you have to get over all of the things that Sophia was just describing, but then you have to do it up on stage in front of an audience and everyone else who's waiting for their turn to play instead of everyone playing the whole time. Yeah. And I yeah. really would like to move jazz jam sessions in that direction. And I know that I will be met with like, in a probably an insurmountable amount of backlash because it's not the tradition, but I feel really strongly that it's one of those places where we can really show that the tradition is not working for a very large number of people who do want to participate. It's just not safe for them to do so in that manner. And, but I think, yes, this, that it's in a circle and that it's not performative and that it's an all play. I think those are the things that are really working well. And, but I am really also curious to know about the things that aren't working well. <laughs> If I could, I would, I would just yeah. add in that there's in our program here at West Virginia, um, there is, I do make some distinctions about who gets to do all play and who gets to do more uh, kind of band oriented work. And okay. bluegrass, is, bluegrass is traditionally a band oriented music. It was a commercial form of country music. It still is. It has the trade organization, the International Bluegrass Music Association. It has its own radio airplay charts. It's, it's mm -hmm. a band oriented music. Old time right. music is is very much still grounded in the vernacular. Sure, there are recording stars, but it's it's kept up, you know, by local community people. Um, you know, every, around here it seems like literally every little burg has a fiddler or a banjo player, and that's no exaggeration. But it's right. community oriented, and so our old time jam is a place where we get to know each other and do kind of sociality work, so that everybody plays there. But then my beginning and intermediate students often stay in that jam to learn and the more advanced students maybe students who come with years of playing bluegrass music they get put into a different group that that's the group we actually tore out with they're capable of putting together a 45 or 50 minute show in about six weeks and then we hit the road with them and i've noticed too the dynamics between the touring group and the the jam group sometimes it's just it's radically different for me to walk from one to the other um and also, from a logistical standpoint, I know, and we're talking you know, primarily to, to a teaching audience here, um, I don't get paid to do any of this work. It's a one-credit course that I do as a bonus to my load. And so I'm a music historian. I do musicology courses. Uh, and this is a thing I do out of passion. At passion one point project. in time, it's, a, it's really a passion project. At one point in time, though, I had three different groups that were working simultaneously uh, at different levels and was teaching all three of them in a single hour okay so i would go from one room to another room to another room and offer coachings and i would have to trade it i basically would, would would assign a band leader and say you're in charge here you're in charge here you're in charge here come back and talk to me about what you actually did and i'll offer feedback there but from a purely logistical standpoint again we're talking about like seeding that power back over um it's a deliberate, I mean, it's a pedagogical necessity for me, but it also helps to show that there's a little bit of uh, everybody has to buy in in order to be part of that. Um, right. And so, yeah, just I wanted to add that as, a, as another thing. But I do think that you're right, the all play factor in particularly old time music, or if you, you get them started on gospel songs, 
gospel songs are great, right? Like everybody, regardless of religious faith, it seems can can catch at least one verse and chorus of "I'll Fly Away," or "Will <laughs> the Circle Be Unbroken." Be in it. Yeah, and really? so and and so we start with stuff like that, and then let them go from there. You can teach so much great music making with. Mm kind of common practice American hymnody uh, the, the, and gospel songs that, that everybody, it seems like everybody can catch on. And in the, we've been doing this, what, seven years now? We've had students from, you know, various places in the U.S. But we've also had students from Brazil. We've had students from Indonesia. We've had, you know, we've had, we've had students who didn't grow up in American vernacular music necessarily, mm-hmm. who've been able to find a place within within these musics by participating in that all play format. Uh, so I think I think you're onto something, Kelly, with that. That's, <laughs> so and for jazz, and for jazz, like what about what about New Orleans jazz, right? Like New Orleans, New Orleans jazz, or what we used to, you know, what some people call Dixieland, is everybody is everybody playing at the same the time. The second line is definitely like like a core group but then picking up everyone along mm-hmm. the way it's an all play and it's going in sense. that's right that's um, right so i want to like pose this to all the people here um so kelly um my very first experience with jamming yeah in a bluegrass community was um a real eye-opener let's just say oh. Okay, so I am a very, I'm a pretty forward, um, hard-headed woman who doesn't usually, um, I mean, I guess, I guess I will walk into situations sometimes where I don't have any business doing that. So um, (laughs) I was a college kid. I was at my first bluegrass festival. Yeah. I was starting to get into bluegrass, but also a classical music major, you know, music ed. And I was at this festival, you know, hippie dress, barefoot, this kind of thing. I love thinking about you that way because I have never known that Beth with a hippie dress and bare feet. Okay, well, I was. Hilarious, I know, I know, and I've seen pictures. And so what I did was I traipsed over with my violin case over to a group of gentlemen um, who were, you know, middle to older aged. And I thought to myself, these look like nice people. I think I'll jam with them. So I got out my instrument. For Koch. Got out my instrument. Travis sees where this is going. Um, Got out my instrument and started jamming. Um, I I thought that that's what was going on. (laughs) Right. So what happened was the kind gentleman on my left who was playing a, a guitar and the kind gentleman on my right who was playing a banjo took one step forward and then they took one step together. (laughs) There I was with my fiddle. That was like they and offed you with their bodies. So it was at that moment in time where I realized that there is an etiquette to this 
And I made it my mission when I started teaching kids bluegrass music that they need to know these unspoken rules. <laughs> right. Right. So. Now, okay, that is hilarious but also i think like super important to talk about like right every genre of music has its rules its etiquette it's no can do's right but who teaches those to students right. and how and when i think that's maybe where the misfire comes because yeah. i would argue that um a college violinist should have been taught that at some point in their career by a private teacher, a school teacher, or somebody. Like that shouldn't have even been something that happened. And I wonder about, um, here's what I wonder. Are we not teaching those rules to students because we want to gatekeep something that we find to be ours i want it to be mine and unless you go through these hoops and jump these hurdles and do these things you won't have like proved yourself it feels it always feels uh icky to me instead of just explaining the rules i don't know can somebody talk about that yeah please it well, feels well, like well, gatekeeping to me my, my thought on that my thought on that, though, is that there are jerks that we don't need to tolerate, right? right? Like, we shouldn't tolerate jerk behavior at any point. And so, like, the way I'm, I run my program is very hippy-dippy, right? <laughs> it is actually the, it is the opposite of how I was raised up in, in kind of adjacent to this music. I did bluegrass mm -hmm. gospel music as a kid uh, with my mom. We played around local churches about an hour south of where I am right now. Um, and there is there is a lot of kind of crappy hyper masculine BS, as 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 we've already talked about there. And I'm I, I was don't a sense picture two women doing that. No. <laughs> no, but and, and you know, and as a, as a, as a sensitive kid who who took that stuff very seriously, mm. like it hurt it hurt me in ways too, right? Yeah. So part of the part of my pedagogy is working to build a better bluegrass, mm -hmm. right? to not change the music, right? And to not change kind of what, what are the, the most essential parts of that culture and being respectful of it. But I think that, that there is value in teaching kids that that sort of behavior is intolerable any place, right? That again, remember what I said, my teaching philosophy is about making sure students feel safe, loved and seen. Mm -hmm. And that's in my classroom and that's in the community when they go out to play. And so I'll warn students if they start playing with, if they want to go to a jam session that I know isn't hostile or is hostile to newcomers, I'll be darn sure to tell them, right? Like that's not a jam session you want to go to right now because you won't feel safe, loved and seen, right? Mm -hmm. There are musicians in our community who I will make darn sure that women don't go play with because I know their reputations, right? And I will yeah. encourage men to not play with them either so that we can well, cut that out right ally work travis yeah, well but but I, th I i just think it's i think it's necessary right because bluegrass music and really any of the any of our american vernacular traditions have they have so much power to to really revolutionize the world that our kids are going to be in right mm -hmm. to give them to teach them revolutionary power but if we teach them that they have to put up with the bs the gatekeepers put up in front of them yeah. alongside that then we're undercutting our message 
right so for me it's about is about as and I, and I make mistakes too for sure there have been times where where you know I haven't been the the ally that I wanted to be We've uh, all gone but over. right but but you know what I think I think that there's value in just saying if your if your applied teacher is, is treating you that way that's unacceptable if these guys at our local music festival are treating you that way that's unacceptable you deserve to be treated with dignity and this music can be welcoming to you if you find the right people to play with yeah right. well i think that idea of build like that statement building a better bluegrass is mm -hmm. beautiful and it sounds like something that sophia is very focused on and yes. i'd love to talk about that concept a little bit more because i can see real value not just there but we need to build a better jazz community and if you want to continue teaching exclusively western art music to your students you're really going to need to build a better culture there. Yes. I mean, just toxic behavior. Lots of work to cannot be, be accepted in any genre. Anyway, big ahead. <laughs> yeah, I've been, that's been coming up in a lot of conversations lately has been this idea of unlearning mm -hmm. and what that looks like um, and how we learn unlearning because this is a, this is a, concept that is very uncomfortable for a lot of folks. Um, I've sort of observed, you know, so I studied education. Um, I've been educated in a variety of contexts. Um, I, I grew up showing cattle and goats in 4-H um, <laughs> and have just often been in non-school-based educational settings too, right. like agriculture, livestock, these sorts mm -hmm. of things, uh, you know, informal music making outside of school. Um, and I sort of observed or sort of come to this idea of like, you know, we, we either as teachers, we either teach our students by way of doing that your learning ends with your formal education or that it begins there and, and keeps going. Yes. And so I find that even a lot of conversations that I try to have with good friends and family members, it's, it's a being taught that you've arrived at life. You've arrived at whatever set of beliefs or ideologies. Sorry that I'm laughing. Out. This has reminded me of one of like the most hilarious <laughs> teaching speeches I've ever given, which I'll have Beth tell in a minute, but okay. Yeah, go ahead. Keep talking. Not it. <laughs> so, so there's, this, there's this arrival pedagogy that I think a lot of teachers are actually trained into, right? You, yes. you model by, by you're the expert, you're the master of all knowledge and, and you're right. Um, and even if it's not quite as firm, that that's often the sort of, that's what a lot of teachers put out. Right, but but that there's this other model which is vulnerable, which is extremely reflective, which is more work, <laughs> and that oh, is yeah. the one where you mess up in front of your students and you don't know in front of your students and you show them that right. you are learning too. So they're not learning when they they're not done learning when they leave their classroom, when they graduate from that school, when they get go to college, and when they're done, and when they get the job, like it never stops. Um, and so I feel I'm very grateful that I've had, I've been exposed to, you know, that, that latter model that, that very, I think that's what's necessary to move us forward in this moment mm. is for, um, 
you know, and, and we reach, especially um, an example, right? So in, in the Columbus, where I'm at, out of Columbus, Ohio, Columbus Public Schools, we have a, a really quickly, rapidly growing Latino student population here. Mm -hmm. And this past year, I, I volunteered a little bit as an interpreter for parent-teacher conferences. And there is, we are also arriving at this gen a generational cultural gap in the way that teachers are being trained from predominantly white higher education institutions yes. and then what their like local on the ground community actually looks like. Right. And are they culturally competent? Do they have the knowledge to provide resources to the parents of students or the students themselves who need it? A lot of times the answer here is no. No, um, I think so, that's pretty universally true. <laughs> yeah, so I think that, um, you know, taking something like music or thinking about, um, okay, well, you know, Travis and I have written about this recently, the, the jam or the idea of the circle that we've been talking about mm -hmm. as a pedagogic tool that that's like a, a way to start a lot of other conversations about mm -hmm. equity, about access, all of these things. And the one thing on that, along those lines that Beth, your sort of anecdote made me think of is that that is the, that's the sort of um, paradox of the circle, right? Is that it is inclusive, it is all play, but there's always someone outside of the circle. There, yep. there will always be the periphery. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to look so, at who those people are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, in the case of a music education or a music classroom, say in a public school, um, the people outside of that circle are the people who don't even darken the door of the band room or the orchestra room. They don't even consider signing up for our program. And um, we don't have a program that fits these people. And they are not they are, they are our students who are not being served. And yeah, we're, we're doing something, we're doing something here at West Virginia this semester in response to COVID that I think, I think offers a model for how to get those students in, because I, I, I'm with you. Those are the students that I'm, I, I stay up at night worrying about. Like who, mm -hmm. who's not, who do I not get to see? Because you might not get to see them. I get to see even fewer of them as a member of a music faculty. Sure. Right? Um, and I think what we're doing is because we can't have orchestra and band and choir in the same ways we normally have them, right. we're allowing students the option one, to select whatever ensemble they want to do. Mm -hmm. So they can do or orchestra, but it's string only and they don't have to participate. Um, and then they can join this course that is basically creative music exploration. Now That's this cool. is for this is for music majors, right? But it's for students who uh, maybe want to expand their expand in some way. And I can I can see where a class that was open in that sense, right, uh, in a middle school that says mm -hmm. you know, we're going to have the tools you need to make music here but you bring your interests and I'll help you reverse engineer it. I'll help you learn, right? So there you're again, the facilitator and not the, not the person on the podium. Uh, I'm, I think it's power. advocating that everyone do that right now. I mean, that is like their classes. Honestly, awesome. honestly, this is like what it's all about. Seriously, like I, this is, this is a blessing of COVID. Yes. This is a blessing of COVID. Like, we have a chance 
To actually start engineering this. To actually serve our students. Yeah. And maybe find students who have avoided our classrooms because they have not felt safe or loved or seen. That's a yeah, lot I, of kids. It, it is. And I, I'm, I always hate it when a student, somebody comes up to me and says, I, I couldn't do this. I'm not musical. Well, that's a message they learned probably in seventh grade. Yeah. Right? When they Earlier, decided that, totally. right? They, well, yeah, they decided they didn't want to be in band, and so now all that's left yeah. is, is music appreciation, however that's manifested, right? And I listen right. to the radio, and that's it. Everybody can sing. Yes. Everybody can sing, right? It might, it doesn't, I, I'm not a, not a Christian person, but I do believe that the Lord likes it when we make a joyful noise. Yeah. Uh, and so whatever that joyful noise is, uh, I want to hear that. And, and uh, we, there's a student in my program now who I've li been lucky to have for like four different degrees. She stayed on for a couple of master's degrees and she started out kind of a wobbly singer, but she was a passionate singer. And now she sang last week. She might even be tuned in now. She just knocked it out of the park in tune, in time, like really just solid, solid work. And it started because it was like, I want to hear you sing. You want to sing? I want to hear you sing, right? It wasn't about saying, well, you don't sing good enough to be in this group, right? Get out of here. It was just, you want to sing? Let me work with what you got. Uh, and now, holy moly, watch out world. Uh, it's really powerful. Uh, made me think of um, this, uh, a friend of Beth and mine, Robin Holcomb, who is a really great pianist and vocalist and composer in Seattle. But um, she was also like the best chaperone I ever had <laughs> kids. And, <clears throat> and just a really kind, thoughtful, gentle person and was just perfect uh, as a chaperone. It was unbelievable. Anyway, we, you know, at middle school jazz festivals, there's a lot of things going on that I don't really want to listen to. It's kind of painful. <laughs> and I get sort of worked up. Like, uh, like, how did you even, I get judgmental. Like, how was this even allowed to happen? Why did you pick this song? Of all the songs in the whole world, why this one? Or like, how, please, just please just play CGM blues instead. And let's just learn how to articulate in the jazz style. Like I get really worked up about these things. And I would observe Robin sitting in the audience, just absolutely smiling and bobbing her head and snapping. And I finally, after a while, like several of these things asked her, what was going on with her that she was able to sit and enjoy this absolute like disaster that was going on and she said to me that it was just so charming that all of these kids wanted to engage in music and she just thought it was so beautiful and that changed my thinking forever it really did it is beautiful of course we want all these kids engaged. My problem is with the teacher not being properly trained and what choices to make. And that's why I've got a mission to help um, folks learn how to teach jazz. <laughs> you know, Kelly, um, I'm going to, as I usually do on these episodes, I'm going to tie some threads between, you know, previous episodes and previous guests. And what really gets me is that these two guests um, are echoing things that 
a lot of other guests have brought up. Things like um, community involvement is super important. Right. Things like um, student voice is is bringing making a person feel seen and heard um, and allowing the student to have a voice in what's going on is super important. Um, also themes like um, we're all singers here. Yeah, we're all, everybody sings. Everybody can sing. Um, yeah, um, so I am really glad that that these two guests are also on the same page with that. It's driving home some of these ideas that we have for um, transforming music ed. And I think more than anything, what Sophia was saying, vulnerability, mm -hmm. that is, we, we as music teachers ask our students to be vulnerable every single day. And yet we are unwilling to be vulnerable ourselves. And um, like Jessica said two weeks yeah. ago, that really makes you kind of a liar. And it makes kids, you to use her words, feel betrayed. You asked me to do this thing. I put myself out there for you, you know? And mm -hmm. but you're not willing to do that also. It's a real, I think, misstep in our field, this need to know everything and to well, yeah. all the time. And, if I, and if, I, if I could claim Jessica, I will. Because Jessica, <laughs> Jessica was my honors uh, thesis student for two years back at Millican University in Illinois. And she came to me and said, I want to do a project that is meaningful to me and to my family history. And I said, well, I know nothing about Filipino folk music, but I bet you can teach me. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and and so, uh, I don't know if that was a transformative uh, thing, but I know that she gave me the opportunity to be vulnerable in that way, and I carry right. the lessons that I learned from her uh, with me in in my teaching every day. And yeah. it's not just about music, but it's about risk taking, and it's about it's about uh, the value of learning your own family roots in a school where maybe your family roots are are deliberately you don't you maybe where you don't present them deliberately because you know what's going on might not, your life might not be valued in the same way right. um and and you know i i appreciate i appreciate what she taught me in in that work uh and i'm so glad to see to see that she's thriving there oh, yeah. uh, that just makes me happy too and i'm also yeah. just reporting that she is watching and commenting currently hey <laughs> sophia perked up when you said yes. that go ahead yeah, I would also just say that I think Travis has in turn taught that to me or given me those opportunities, right, to mm -hmm. to take risks, to experiment, right? I did not grow up immersed in Appalachian music, um, but I I have a lot of like very strong family connections to what Appalachia that's already, you know, there's a lot of conversations about that, but um, to find, I mean, I guess, you know, my relationship with Travis and the, the model of bluegrass learning that I was exposed to as expansive and inclusive and experimental and risk-taking, let me go there when it came to, okay, well, you know, my, my dissertation research started as yeah. uh, looking at women in bluegrass, right? I interviewed a lot of women musicians and took in their stories and I, I realized like, I do, these resonate with me, but but there's something missing, right? And the missing part was that, um, you know, my I, I'm mixed Mexican, Anglo, Appalachian, and 
I found Mexalachian music and I found Latin grass and mm-hmm. you know it's not mine but I I was able to make those connections right and start to build these communities and that that led to this like really rich <laughs> rich uh, history uh, it's a um, there's a lot a lot of stuff going on and that I would say to anyone listening or who might listen to this mm-hmm. that's like well Appalachian music you know what does that have to do with me or, or how how could I go there it's that it does like I'm an example right like there there are the tools there to to show you the narratives that aren't just the what what you might think of when you think of Appalachia or a banjo right like right because right. the banjo in itself is its whole other episode and you know totally <laughs> that history. Yeah. but um I would just say that that is the sort of Appalachian music that I I see now in its mm-hmm. current form, one that is expanding in all of these different directions, and it's really exciting. And I think if teachers could could tap into that, that that's really amazing because there is something for your students no matter where they come from, um, because there is Mexalachian music, there is probably Chinese Appalachian music, you know there these connections or you know these surprising connections really i would say aren't so surprising when we actually like take a moment to think about well what are the histories in all of these songs it's mm-hmm. people it's people leaving home right it's people it's yeah. people picking up and moving it's also people staying it's there's just there's a lot in terms of relationship to place and to land um into the way that cultures have interacted in a, sp- a place of the country that has given us so much rich music. So I would just say that um, in terms of, yeah, allowing your sort of entry into, or my entry into bluegrass in this case, to, to take me home, mm-hmm. that that was like really, that was really powerful. Because I didn't, it's not that I saw myself in the way I started, but I got there. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. And so thank you, Travis, for always, for see, for watching my <laughs> my little Mexalachian world unfold in front of me. Well, it's so cool. And, um, and thank you, you know. for always holding me to standards. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for making, making sure that I do better. Yeah, both, yeah. both sides. Well, you know, you, you make like this kind of point that um, you know, in Appalachian music, we spend a lot of time telling old stories of the songs that we sing and, and play um, that tell, you know, old stories. But we've got a story that is being now. written right now. And yeah. it's with all of the people who are here now, coming from all kinds of different places and are here now. And this is this is our home now. And like, we need to honor that that story that's happening right this second and um, include the people that are here right this second, you know? Second. Well, it makes me feel like making a very bold statement at this time, uh, maybe to wrap up with a little commentary. I feel like, um, listen, I'm not really very patriotic, but I do believe that um, what makes me proud to be an American. (laughs) (laughs) What makes me proud is that this country is supposed to be, at least, a place 
that is welcoming for whoever wants to be here and that the um the uh bringing together of different cultures to be the american experience is what i find truly beautiful um and i feel like uh musics that are based in this idea of um bringing from wherever a person was from before and making something new is really like what what a lot of americans value and i myself value jazz is that and i also think that what you're describing um is in a lot of ways appalachian music and so you know a lot of teachers want like an answer right now for what we should be mm -hmm. doing and i feel like if you choose any old type of american roots music whether it's old time old time appalachian jazz gospel blues. blues if you choose any of those things you're not only going to be able to teach um all of the music fundamentals and skills that you want to teach but you'll also be able to get at student voice you'll also be able to get at improvisation you will also be able to dig into history in a much more interesting way storytelling storytelling it's not just european history you're actually in if you go that route able to teach very progressive forward thinking we it doesn't matter who you are or what you're from what you have to bring is what we want and i feel like i want to see that in every classroom um i think that's where it should be at as far as music education moving forward at this time and we have this chance right now since everything is different because of covid we have this chance to like do that we got to act yeah all right i mean you're all my accountability partners right now was that yes. a crazy statement <laughs> I don't think so at all. I feel it in my heart to be true. I, I, I think I think you're right on, and I think right now we're in a, 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 a not only because of I mean because of COVID we're in a unique situation for lots of reasons. Yeah. But one of them is that we get to look into our kids' rooms, into their homes. Mm -hmm. uh, when I started kindergarten back in the mid '80s, the kindergarten teacher actually showed up at our house before we started. They would do a home visit and check yeah. out. Like you know, how how are you you know, how are your living situations and what well, do you have a bathroom that works things like that we're seeing that now we're seeing how our kids live in ways that we've not had the opportunity to do for those of us who are who are working in a virtual situation and I think if anything for me it's not about what do I teach uh, what's the thing but it's more what's the what's the what's the question that's what am I what are my kids able to bring and how can I support that yeah like let's right? see ourselves as makers of connections, um, facilitators. Let's see ourselves as meters of needs. Um, we are teaching individuals here. Like we are here to serve individual students. And this COVID thing is making that more and more clear to me every day. And I would add that, well, one of the things that I emphasize, so I'm teaching a, um, upper level undergraduate class called music on the move in a, in a globalized world 
Hmm. And I've been very clear given the circumstances that, you know, I, my, the goal of this class is not to make your life harder, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that we have the power right now as just educators, whether that's in a K-12 setting or not, to give students the tools they need to make sense of this world that they're currently living in. Right. Like, that's what we should be doing. We yeah. should be making it make sense for them to help them process what's going on. So that looks different for me. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in a 50 question, multiple choice final exam because no. that's not serving <laughs> the, the reality of the situation and the, the critical necessity to reflect and to process and to feel some sense of groundedness in what we're learning and talking about. So I think that that's really important to think through too, is that how is your material, if we even want to call it that, your pedagogy, how are you giving opportunities to your students to process and to, and to, to grow, um, to, to feel okay right now? Mm -hmm. so. To feel okay and then maybe ultimately feel empowered to make music outside of the confines of our classroom walls. Snaps, dude. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is a nice little bow on the end of the episode. Yes, it is. <laughs> so what we're going to do now is say goodbye to Facebook Live, and we're going to um, boop on in new people to the Zoom call for their teacher talk slash clock hours. Goodbye, Facebook land. Thank you. <laughs>A million thanks to our listeners, followers, and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product, and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us, and we are delighted you've decided to join.